Hi, folks. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Bolder, the program that celebrates hope, inspiration, and possibility, and who doesn't want more of that? You're right, Mark. On this program, you'll hear from experts. They'll bring the tools, the examples of ordinary people living extraordinary lives to show you that it's within your reach to do the same. Our guests are all different, but the takeaway every week is very similar. You, too, can change your life. You can improve your health. You can even reinvent yourself, chase, and catch your wildest dreams. Today, you're going to meet a man who believes he has the simple solution to protecting the health of your brain. Plus, we'll talk to the world's foremost expert on volunteerism. And we've got the world's greatest softball player on the most important single step you can ever take. Growing Boulder's nutrition expert and registered dietitian, Dr. Susan Mitchell, will join us with tips to lower your blood pressure. She is an award-winning writer and broadcast journalist, a well-known face on ABC News for 30 years. But what you might not know is she's not only a swimming enthusiast, she may be the world's most passionate (laughs) swimming enthusiast. She has written a great new book that is receiving outstanding reviews from literally every major literary and media organization in the world. It's a love letter to swimming, an homage to the pastime that continues to capture the hearts of young and old. Let's welcome the author of Swim, Why We Love the Water, Lynn Schur. Hey, Lynn, how are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm so happy to be with you today. Well, well, thank you. We're thrilled to have you. Uh, Let's talk about the book because you touch on all aspects of swimming. So let's go back to the very beginning. When did man actually begin to swim for pleasure? Well, um, there's evidence of swimming on prehistoric caves. There are images of swimmers. Um, There are at least two, maybe more, Egyptian hieroglyphs about swimming. And so it's really always been part of our lives. You know, I always say um, there wasn't one of those um, first brave person to eat an oyster moments. Uh, (laughs) It just, it's been part of our lives forever since there were humans. So it goes way back. And there were great swimmers in in ancient times as well that we know about. For instance, Julius Caesar was a very strong swimmer and famously uh, won at least a battle or two because he was able to swim across a harbor when all the fighting was going on. Wow. You know, Lynn, I'm always interested in, in the motivation that, that authors have before they begin to write in, in choosing the subjects. Because really, I mean, you could, you could, your canvas was blank when you started. And, and what was it about the water and about swimming? When did you first ha- start your love affair? Well, I've been swimming since I was a toddler, and I've never been competitive, and it's never been the only motivating force in my life. But, but it's always been a big part of my life, certainly since I was an adult. And I think what happened is, you know, I only write books about things that I'm really passionate about. Um, my, my, uh, my day job, at least until I left ABC News a few years ago, has always been politics, space, nitty-gritty, getting this stuff out, and I loved it, loved it, loved it, still do love it, still do lots of interviews in those fields. But when I write my books, I like to write about the things that mean a lot to me personally. So I've written a book about giraffes, which I love. I've written a book about the song America the Beautiful, which I think ought to be our national anthem. Um, I've done, you know, Susan B. Anthony, my hero, the great um, suffrage leader. And when I'm swimming, I'm on another planet. I just, I'm in another place. My head is somewhere else. My body feels great. And I started thinking maybe there's something there and maybe other swimmers feel the same way. And this will not surprise you, I'm sure. But from the email I'm getting, there's a there's an email address on the jacket of my book and we have a Facebook page about it. The comments I'm getting, people are desperate to talk about swimming. Swimmers love swimming. And that's kind of the... The, the group that I've tapped into on this. We love the, the fact that you are so eclectic in, in the subject that you choose <laughs> to write about because we... If we, nothing else, very eclectic. Well, you know, what? we encourage people to chase their passions no matter what it is. You know, what is it, do you think, Lynn, after all of your research and, and your personal observation, at its deepest level, what is the attraction to swimming? Is it tactile? Do we like the way it feels? Is it magical? Is it spiritual? Is, is it meditative? I think it's exactly all of those things. Uh, Number one, on the physical level, uh, the skin is our largest organ. 
So when you're in the water, every single inch of it is being touched. So on the one hand, it's a very sensual pleasure. On another, because of buoyancy, that wonderful physical property, you can float and you feel as if you're flying. And what a great feeling that is. Um, Also, on the physical end, there's no pounding of the joints on the pavement. It's not like what runners experience. There's no ankles and wrists and elbows to break. Um, It's a soft landing. So, it, you know, the great Esther Williams um, has said, when you're in the water, you're ageless and weightless. So on that, on that physical level, it's extraordinary. On a psychological and emotional level, I think that there is something otherworldly about being in the water. And, uh, you know, you can, there are waterproof gadgets you can get for your iPod. You can get waterproof earphones. You can listen to music in the water. I love the silence. I love the fact that when I'm in the water, either doing my laps or swimming a long length in the open water, that nobody can talk to me, that I'm there on my own, and I I write things when I'm in the water. I solve problems, and it both calms me down and it energizes me. It's just a magical combination. Well, you make it sound great just there alone, but I do want to point out to our listeners that the book is not just about our love of water, but you also go deeper. You look, get it, get it go deeper. You look at the science behind it, too. In fact, you call swimming a medical must? I think it is. You know, there is some evidence, some, let's let's put it that way, that, um, well, how do we put this, that swimming uh, may be as close as you can get to the fountain of youth, and that chlorinated water may be, in fact, what's filling that fountain of youth, because there are many, many tests that indicate that swimming actually, it's not only good for you, but that in some cases, it may actually slow down the aging process. There are great studies being done um, about the brain, about the central nervous system, one in particular at Indiana University in Bloomington, and I was a participant in that study. And there is is a connection between rigorous uh, daily or several times a week swimming and um, the maintenance of brain function and of connectivity in the brain and the ability to make sudden decisions and to respond to what your brain is telling you to do. All these things that slow down as we get O-L-D-E-R, it's possible that by a regular swimming routine, you can slow down that slowing down process. Fascinating stuff. We're speaking with uh, Lynn Schur, uh, an award-winning writer and journalist for 30 years with ABC News. Now she's writing whatever pleases her, and we're thrilled that swimming has pleased her. Uh, And, Lynn, we should note the book is is not about competitive swimming, although you do mention that you even got into that a little bit yourself with an open-water swim in Turkey. Indeed. I... You know, most of the swimming books that are out there are technique books, how to go faster, how to improve your fly, how to improve your freestyle and all that. And I think that's just wonderful. Um, I'm not, first of all, I'm not capable of writing that book, but that's not the book I wanted to write. The feeling, why we love it, people's stories, uh, it's a meditation, it's an excitement. But yes, I decided in addition to all of this, which I could draw on from my own experience and interviewing people, I thought I needed to challenge myself, and um, so I picked a swim, uh, and I decided that I was going to join a big international race swimming across uh, the Hellespont, known today as the Dardanelles. It's that uh, open water strait that separates Europe from Asia in western Turkey. And you need to understand, guys, I was a lazy lap swimmer. I had never done anything like this in my life. But I wanted to challenge myself. And I was also, you know, in my 60s, I'm a grandma, and I thought, if I don't do it now, when am I going to do this? So I trained. I joined U.S. Masters Swimming. I did drills. I swam in the open water. I did my, got my endurance up to two hours at a time. And last summer, on August 30th, I won't give you all the details here, <laughs> but they're in the book, I swam the Hellespont. I made it across, and I even got a medal. I even won my age group. Way to go. That's incredible, isn't it? Hey, Lynn, in our last 30 seconds or so, would you mind going through, because this is not unique to our generation. It's not even unique to modern times. Humans and the water have gone together. Can you throw some of the names at us that you did in the book? It was great. 
Well, certainly Johnny Weissmuller and Esther Williams, who were the great um, movie stars of the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, they were actual uh, swimming champions as well. Uh, Gertrude Ederle, first woman to swim the English Channel, an American, a New Yorker, did it at age 19 in 1929. Uh, and, I mean, it, it just goes on forever. The most extraordinary people, Lord Byron, the great English romantic poet, was a wonderful swimmer. And, by the way, <laughs> the first human that we know of to swim the Hellespont back in 1810. It has a rich history. And, of course, Benjamin Franklin, one of the earliest best swimmers as a young man, used to swim when he was working in England, swam down the Thames River to the delight of all of his friends. <laughs> and I understand he also invented the Speedo. Is that true? <laughs> <laughs> well, that will be for the next edition. How about that? She is Lynn Schur. Her new, her new book is Swim, Why We Love the Water. Folks, you don't have to be a swimmer to love the book. Check it out. Keeping your balance and your brain, one man says he can help you do both. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Located in West Orange County, Orlando Health's Health Central Hospital is a full-service hospital with a newly expanded ER as well as top-rated neurospine and orthopedic programs. Learn more at orlandohealth.com. And by... The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com. I'm Bill Shaver with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder. You know, as we age, many of us have a fatal flaw that can lead to a fatal fall. You lose your balance, stability, even your coordination. Boy, that is so true, Bill. But Stephen Jepson says he can change all of that for everyone. And as a bonus, he believes he can help you build brain cells, develop neural pathways, and perhaps even prevent or delay Alzheimer's and dementia. And you're going to like this prescription. You know what he says to do? play. Stephen believes the key to never losing your balance or your mind are the games and activities of our youth. You're about to meet a very unusual man. Boom. Is there a chance that you could be the most interesting man in the world? No, but that's nice for you to say. That's nice for you to say, man. To really understand Stephen Jepson, you have to go back about 65 years to the day he said, Hey, Mom, there's nothing to do. And my mother said, son, your bed needs making, the lawn needs mowing, and the trash needs carrying out. From that moment forward, he has never needed anyone or anything to amuse himself. Now in his early 70s, he rides his elliptical bike in the street and spends his days walking slack ropes, throwing knives, and jumping barefooted from rock to rock to rock to rock. Stephen believes the key to a long and healthy life is play. He has a simple philosophy that he calls never leave the playground. And to prove it, he's turned his property into a personal playground where he invents ways to keep his body and mind agile. My memory has become absolutely intense since, uh, since beginning to do all this stuff. Um, I don't forget things. And he never falls. He has the balance of a teenage circus performer, something he's determined to teach others to stem the rising epidemic of life-changing falls. Two million people are going to fall down and go to the hospital, to the emergency room. If you fall and break your hip, there's a tremendous number of the population that's going to be dead in a year. And 80% of people who, over 65, fall and break their hip are never going to live independently again. Stephen believes that playground activities are as important for older adults as they are for young children because they build neural pathways, grow brain cells, develop balance and coordination, and are key to preventing Alzheimer's, dementia, and bone-breaking falls. And when I get really good, I can make them taller, and I can step over these, maybe. <laughs> that's, that's, that's tougher. You're an inventor. You're a mad scientist. I am indeed. Stephen's inventions include a skateboard that he still rides daily. And nobody's ever seen anything like this. This is curved this way, and it's also curved this way. He's also designed, patented, and builds one-of-a-kind kayaks. What makes it unique? 
Okay, it's comfortable like your couch at home. It's 12 feet long and it weighs 15 pounds, 9 ounces, which is extremely light. It's carbon fiber and epoxy. It's been vacuum bagged. It'll take one of those great big coolers in the back, so it has carrying capacity. It's fast and it tracks well. And he invented and built what may be the most unusual pair of skates in the world. I don't know if you can see that where it says Jepson Rolls, and it's uh, Jepson's my name, of course. How many people do you know that can do this? I, I don't know anybody personally that can do it. I have. Can been, you? Oh, I can do it, yeah. I'm gonna de I'll demonstrate for you if you want. To prove it, he runs out into the street, steps on the skates, and takes off. You can almost hear his mother yelling now to get out of the street and away from the traffic. Stephen has always been the creative type. He's a retired college arts professor and a renowned ceramic artist. I have a piece in the Smithsonian, the National Museum, and I still go in, around the country and teach it, but I don't make pottery anymore. But it's gorgeous. Uh, Thank you very much. Casserole. And you have a DVD. I have nine DVDs. They're sold all over the world. I grab a hold under that notch. Selling DVDs all over the world is one thing. Changing the world is another. I, I, I want to change the world. I want to keep people, help people not be so folly downy. I want to help people be better, help live longer, healthier, richer lives. To overcome his fear of falling, he used guy wires to support a vertical ladder. So I learned to do this. I learned to do this. I overcame the fear because I would get up here and this thing wobbles around and I'm not used to juggling wobbling around. Back on the ground, he jumps back and forth over a rail and throws a ball against a wall. Catch with my right, throw with my left, catch with my left, throw with my right, switch pants. He believes developing your non-dominant hand and foot is a key to building brain cells. But then sometimes, sometimes I throw like that and I've never even seen anybody do that. That's what this does. It makes your memory better. It makes you, it makes you feel just absolutely juiced and jazzed and revitalized. Sufficiently jazzed, I, Stephen uh, grabs a couple of old coffee roasting canisters. I do this with both hands. Try to do it a hundred times without dropping. From there, it's a quick session with jacks, alternating hands, of course, followed by stick flipping. There's the half turn left, le left hand. There's a full turn left hand full turn left hand. Now, I've got them all different lengths. Stephen, when is it too late for someone to start this stuff? It's never too late. You can do it at any moment in time. But these are things that old people can't learn. No, that's not so. That's not so. You can abs absolutely, you can, you can learn. I have people, old people are sitting down in a chair and they go like this. They're sitting down in a chair and they go like this. And then, and then maybe they, then maybe they up, the up the distance like that. And then, then they stand up and do this. And how, and how high can you go? Oh, these things right here. They are so, so, so. Have you ever seen these things? They don't bounce straight, right? Oh, no. Anyway, I can do it. I can do it. See how quick my hands are? Quick hands and educated feet. Stephen made a board with a piece of pipe on the bottom and drilled a series of holes into the top. And I numbered them. One, two, three, four, five. And the reason I numbered it like that was to make it the most difficult to roll around. And I thought this might be great for rehabbing those guys coming back from war that are injured, or that, that uh, Gabby woman that got, got her brain ruined by that horrific man out there in Arizona. I thought about writing to her and saying, I could help you. I can help you. And you just do it. You just do it. And you just do it. And you just do it as long as you can, as long as you're comfortable. If juggling on a small bongo board is good, Stephen figures juggling on a big bongo board is better. I get tired just trying to watch this guy. It's got to be exhausting living with him. Well, I'm 55, he's 71, and he runs circles around me. <laughs> but he's inspiring to me. Be bold. That's what I've been saying for pe to people for years and years. Be bold in your life choices because it's just going to be make your life richer. And I do this with my eyes shut, and I can drive through rush hour traffic on 75 right through Atlanta, steering with my knee and doing this in both hands. Of course, he's kidding about that, but his message is dead serious. Never leave the playground. Because it will develop new brain cells. It will cause you to be more creative. It will cause you to be more excited about life. It will improve your memory. From the second the alarm goes off in the morning till the time we go to bed at night, constant movement and activity.
And before he goes to bed every night, Stephen Jepson, learning theorist, philosopher, inventor, athlete, and kid at heart, writes in his journal. And he admits that most days, he writes pretty much the same thing. Today, I'll write exquisite or perfect or wonderful. There is beauty in almost every day and almost every person's life, and all you have to do is look for it, and it's there. It's there to see and find. How about that guy? His message has certainly struck a chord. Since we produced that story, he's heard from people all over the world, everyone from doctors and researchers who confirm his theories to everyday people who want to learn more about his simple games with the big results. You know, we had lunch with Stephen recently, and he said he thinks this story is going to change his life. He's already in the early stages of producing a whole series of DVDs so anyone of any age can improve their balance and lessen the odds that they get Alzheimer's. Are you waiting for your life's purpose to find you? Why not go find it? Dr. Dot Richardson, a two-time Olympic gold medalist and arguably the greatest softball player who ever lived, says the key is simply to believe in yourself and go chase what you love. She's amazing, Mark. You know, she says you have to be willing to fail because everybody does. Nobody's great at anything initially, so don't let the doubts scare you away. Here's Dot. Hi, I'm Dr. Dot Richardson, two-time Olympic gold medalist. If you're waiting for your life's purpose to find you, it could be a very long wait. Those who find the most success and happiness in life don't wait for the world to come to them. Your passion is out there waiting for you to find it. Start today by simply committing to try new things, to get a little outside of your comfort zone. That's where life gets exciting and rewarding. And don't worry if you're not good at something. Come on, nobody's good at something right away. The important question is, do you love it? When you do more of what you love, purpose and prosperity begins to flow into your life. Trust me. Now, where else are you going to get advice like that from a two-time Olympic champion? You can find more motivational tips from Dr. Dot Richardson and other incredible GB contributors. All you have to do to find them is go to growingboldertv.com. Coming up, the healing power of good and how you can tap into it. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Center for Health and Well-Being. Coming soon in Winter Park. Wellness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location. Offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingboulder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. I'm Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer. This is Growing Boulder. Our next guest is considered among the world's top experts on volunteerism. In fact, this is the guy who actually coined the term Helper's High, which is now used everywhere in popular culture to describe the many benefits that one gets from helping others. And he's done so much more than just that, too. He's initiated and led the passage of laws that have had a significant impact on our society. He's written several important books. As a matter of fact, his latest is called The Healing Power of Doing Good. And you ought to check it out because it outlines the emotional health benefits that volunteers get. So let's welcome Alan Lux to the program. Alan, how are you? I am fine. Thanks for, thanks for welcoming me. I want to thank you for uh, volunteering to be on the program. <laughs> how do you decide uh, where to spend your time? Personally, uh, I still volunteer, even though I, I run a program at Fordham University which trains others. And I... Uh, do a whole bunch of stuff. People say to me, well, you're training others. Do you volunteer yourself? I still do because you really get that help as high. And so I'll come home from work and there's a little shelter near me and uh, it has a bunch of homeless people. And at night, it's difficult for them where they're going to go. The shelter isn't the safest place. So churches and synagogues in the area where I live in New York City 
we'll provide a, a place for them to sleep, give them a hot meal, so they'll have a safe place. And then back the next day, we try to, we try to get them jobs, etc. But they need people to cook the meals. They need people to help stay with them. They need people to be there during the night. And I do that, and then I run back to work the next morning, and people say, aren't you tired? And I tell them this is the truth, the truth, the wholesome truth. I get strength. When you're there, when you're reacting to someone else, and you, you have the feedback, and you get the smiles, you get the hugs, it, give, it gives you physical strength. And it's this is the evidence I have, besides the book I've written and all sorts of medical research, in the 30-odd years I've been doing this program. So that's, that's right, it's a long time. Every person I've kind of friend I've dragged in to help me because two people sleep over in these programs. Every friend has kept on because they feel so good. So the whole challenge for our country, uh, for retired people, for all people, is to consider to try at one time this what we call personal contact helping, helping someone on a one-on-one on a very personal level, getting that feedback, and then just see, do I feel better afterward? You know, I don't want to be the devil's advocate here because I totally get what you're saying. But if the main selling point to helping others is that you're really helping yourself, is that in any way contrary to the spirit of volunteerism? No, there was a famous book by Richard Dawkins called The Selfish Gene. And that is we do things to to help ourselves at the end. And the question was when we had cavemen and they had to keep a fire in front of the cave to keep away the animals, they had to cooperate with each other. So therefore, they were always constantly helping each other. They were volunteering with each other. They had to take care of this. They, they, those uh, fellow members of the cave who got sick, they had to help them. Why? Because they needed everybody to keep the uh, flame going. It's the same thing. It's built into our genes that we need to help others because by helping others, we feel good about ourselves. and We need need that good feeling because it's a way to combat, and this goes into the research now, but it's a way to combat the stress that can really hurt us in so many ways, physically as well as emotionally. Hey, Alan, can can you give us some idea of how great the need in our society is for volunteers and volunteerism? I think most of us really have no idea. Well, people say... From, from my many years working in the field, most people you ask will tell you they do want to volunteer, but how do I get started, Alan? And what's the right kind of volunteering for me? It's good questions, and I I want to hasten to add that two people can do the same kind of volunteering, and one person will love it, feel great, and one person will hate it. And an example, be it which I have in the book is two people, an actual example, two people go into a nursing home, two women, and afterward they sit by the bed, they read to these women, and afterwards they go out, and one woman said, this is the greatest experience I ever had. As I'm reading to her, this, the patient kept stroking my hand. I feel so good. I feel so alive. I, I feel wonderful. The woman says, I almost want to cry. And the other woman says, it's the worst thing I ever had because the nursing home smelled like I wanted to run out. And when we try to we teach about volunteering, we try to explain to the second woman, it's just that when we meet people, sometimes we resonate positively with someone, sometimes we don't resonate positively with a certain situation. It's not that they're a bad volunteer, it's just that that situation wasn't right for them. So to answer your question, the first thing we tell people about volunteering is to think what might interest you. Often people want to volunteer in a health area because they have a problem or someone in their family has a problem. They may want to volunteer because they have a certain situation in their community. Something may be interest them. And then all you have to do today, go on the computer and you hit volunteer. And, you'll, and, and you'll, they'll often ask you for your zip code and, and then they'll, I'll will pop up at different volunteer organizations in your area, and then you begin to choose. The only thing is there are certain, to get the feel-good sensations, uh, some volunteering will just ask you to donate clothes. That's not that's bad. I don't want to debunk that anyway, or just writing a check. The volunteering to produce the relaxation, the health benefits, to reduce stress has to be the following. One, you're having personal contact with between one and three people. You get feedback. You have a chance to see how they're appreciating you. And you do it on a continual basis. And this is the hard part. This is the very hard part of about an average, an average of about four hours a month. That's a lot of time. You say, well, one hour a week is not that bad. On that, But four hours a month is a lot of time. But those people who do it, 
those people who do the four hours a, uh, a month have personal contact, do it on a regular basis. Uh, about 90%, 90% report what we call the helpers high, and that is a reduced stress and a, a greater sense of feeling good about themselves. Well, Alan, we certainly appreciate, uh, you know, what you've done for decades. Uh, You certainly are a guy who uh, walks the walk and talks the talk. Uh, His new book, folks, is called The Healing Power of Doing Good. This for the man who actually came up with the term helper's high. It's a way that you can not only help yourself, but but equally, if not more importantly, help others out there. And, you know, folks, uh, we're all children of the 60s in one form or another. We all thought we could change the world for the better back then. We still have the numbers that the question we must ask ourselves today, do we still have the resolve? Can we be more like Alan Lux? Be sure to check out his book, The Healing Power of Good. Thanks, Alan. We appreciate your time. Coming up next, is your blood pressure just a little high? Growing Boulder nutrition expert and registered dietitian, Dr. Susan Mitchell, with news of foods that'll help bring it down. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the Masan Spine Institute, where world-renowned minimally invasive techniques lead to fast recovery. The Masan Spine Institute, excellence in spinal surgery. More information at masansi.com. And by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Hi, Mark Middleton, along with Bill Schaefer, and this is Growing Boulder. And our next guest, folks, is a well-known nutritionist and dietitian who gets it. She has a unique way of sorting through all of the confusion, the misinformation, and the blatantly commercialized recommendations that are floating around regarding what we should, in fact, eat. And, Mark, you know what? We are not the only ones who like her family circle calls her their go-to nutrition girl. This is how important she is. She's appeared on the Today Show, CNN, the Food Network. I could go on and on the entire segment. She's also the author of three books and the host of the popular national blogcast, Straight Talk, about eating smart. All of that and more is why we are proud to call her Growing Boulder's nutrition expert. Wait a minute, Mark. Say, Say that one more time. We are proud to call her Growing Boulder's nutrition wow, expert. I like that. Let's welcome registered dietitian Dr. Susan Mitchell. Hey, Doc, how are you? Hey, I'm great. How are you guys? Yeah, we're wonderful. You know, of the many things that we love about you is the fact that you keep it real. Of course, we can all make better choices, but we don't have to be miserable. In fact, you admit to being a chocoholic, Ooh. and you've even written a book that's called. I'd kill for a cookie. Oh, absolutely. I'm one of those that's never met a chocolate that I don't like. (laughs) (laughs) And I believe in making food real. You know, nutrition, everyone eats, and nutrition is about food. It's not about do not do this and avoid that. It's about learning to do what you can do to empower your health. But we do, Susan. Don't we start to think of, you know, whenever we get in our head, oh, boy, you know, I'm a little heavier than I should be or my numbers didn't come back that well for my doctor. Isn't the first thought, deny, deny, deny? You know, it is. I think people think, okay, I have to give up this. I have to give up that. And that's why I tell people that that diet really is a four-letter word. And then when you drop the T, you feel like you're just going to roll over and die. (laughs) And really, it's about food, looking at, okay, what can I switch out? What little changes can I make? What can I I tweak so that I feel better and I don't feel like I'm deprived. All right, well, let's move on and talk about that because we want to talk to you today about, Susan, if we can, lowering our blood pressure. Doctors tell us step one is to cut our salt and sodium intake. There we go. Deny again. I love salt. That's exactly right. (laughs) How how much of our total sodium intake every day actually comes out of the salt shaker? You know, you'll be surprised because most people think, gosh, if I just give up the salt shaker, I'm going to be in great shape. But really, only 25% of your daily salt and sodium intake comes from the salt shaker. So that makes a whopping 75% that's going to come from all the food that you eat. And basically, bottom line, the more processed foods that you eat, the higher the sodium level. 
So, so you're one of those that says, for, I mean, get rid of the processed food, right? Yeah, cut down as much processed food. But the thing that's neat is that people think, okay, high blood pressure cuts sodium. But actually, what I want to share is that you can actually add things to the diet to bring the blood pressure down. So it's not about denial. It's about, hey, what can I eat that will lower my blood pressure naturally? That is why we like Dr. Susan Mitchell. <laughs> it's not about always what you don't eat. You can actually improve yourself by what you eat. Well, I I got a great example for you, Mark. I mean, the other what I stopped doing because I wanted to cut my salt down. Instead of eating a McDonald's French fries, I now have a Big Mac. Oh, good choice. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you just like tripled your sodium intake, right? What? <laughs> Isn't there more salt in a package of fries than there are in a Big Mac? You know, that, when I ask people, that's what they think. But the truth is, a Big Mac averages a thousand milligram thousand milligrams of sodium. Now you're thinking, okay, what's that relative to? Well, the average person needs about 2,300 milligrams a day. But if you're 50 or older, that need drops to about 1,500. So one Big Mac is two-thirds of your sodium intake for the day, where French fries, an order of French fries contains less than 400 milligrams, actually Mm. about 350. But many times that's because that salt is on the outside. You taste it, and it tastes salty. But like in the Big Mac, all the sodium's contained within. So is there, you know, everyone today, you know, you go to some of the other fast food places and they go, oh, you can eat all you want because we put sea salt on them instead. Yeah, is, you know, sea salt is no different. I mean, the di- I guess, let me put it this way. The crystals might be larger, so there may be a little less sodium, but it's still sodium. So you still have to look at how much, it, uh, how much of that that you're taking in. Uh, Dr. Susan Mitchell is with us now talking about ways to lower our blood pressure through our diet. And, and Dr. Mitchell, I, I could be public enemy number one, uh, at least as far as the chicken population is concerned, because I eat a lot of chicken. Uh, just as there are women out there with saline-enhanced breast, is it true that some poultry have been enhanced or pumped, pumped up themselves with a saltwater solution? You are exactly right. In fact, I, I tell people that listen to my podcast, I say, okay, it's time to become a label sleuth. So the next time you go to the grocery store, what I want you to do is not just look at the nutrition facts label on the back that tells you how much sodium is in something, but you want to look for that really fine print that's on the front of a a package of chicken. I don't care if it's um, an entire chicken, if you're looking for a leg, a breast, but you want to see if it's been enhanced or pumped up with a saltwater solution. And the reason I say that is that poultry that has not been enhanced will contain maybe 50 milligrams of sodium for a four-ounce portion. Well, that's, that's hardly anything. But if that poultry has been enhanced or pumped, uh, pumped up with what's usually chicken broth or water or a little salt, then that sodium level jumps up to 300 to 400 wow. milligrams per four-ounce serving. Yeah, you may as well eat a Big Mac. <laughs> Listen, let's go back to the beginning of our entire conversation because you threw something out there that, that really caught my mind. And, and you said that there are some foods that we can add to our diets now that will help lower blood pressure. Like what, what kind of foods were you talking Absolutely. about? Absolutely. And the first things I tell people, yes, don't forget about sodium. It's important. But let's talk about what you can add. And number one would be the potassium-rich foods. What we know, science tells us that diets low in potassium seem to cause a rise in your blood pressure. So when you consume potassium-rich foods on a day-to-day basis as part of a healthy diet, your blood pressure may be reduced naturally. Okay, now you're thinking, where do I find potassium? What's a potassium-rich food? Think fruits and veggies, almost all of them. So raisins, bananas, tomatoes, that's even tomato paste and tomato sauce, Mm. spinach, citrus, potatoes, things you might not think about. So when you cut processed foods and you bump up fresh fruits and vegetables, guess what happens? Blood pressure lowers naturally. And and other sources, uh, you know, because I read your blog every day, SusanMitchell.org, you mentioned calcium-rich foods and omega-3 rich foods as well. Exactly. And this is why the minerals, potassium, and calcium work in the body together. They have a synergistic effect to lower the blood pressure. So if you think of calcium, where are you going to find that? Sure. And and what we think of first, that's going to be dairy. So whether that's yogurt or cheese, milk, even calcium-fortified products like orange juice, 
or soy and almond milk that have been fortified with calcium, mm. when you add the calcium in, again, you're lowering sodium, but you're boosting up the calcium and the potassium together, which have a natural blood pressure lowering effect just by eating foods that you love. Incredible. And and medical science has proven that just hanging with Dr. Susan Mitchell (laughs) can extend your life a minimum of 10 years. And you can do that. You can hang out with her by going to SusanMitchell.org or you can check out her growing library of content on GrowingBolder.com. She tells it like it is. She's the one and only Growing Boulder nutrition specialist, Dr. Susan Mitchell. Coming up, doctors didn't think he'd live to see 40. We'll find out how he did it and why he thinks being 60 might be the best age yet. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by the UCF College of Medicine, where physicians, scientists, and teachers are discovering innovative solutions for today's medical challenges and bringing them to you. Learn more about the college's physician practice at ucfhealth.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder Magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. The following interview was recorded before the passing of our guest. My guards stood hard when abstract threats to noble Hi, Mark Middleton. Bill Schaefer is alongside, and you are listening to one of the most important, most empowering shows on radio, Growing Boulder, because as you know, there has never been a more interesting time to be alive. And no, it's not just about living longer, because if you're sick, nothing could be worse. It's about the possibilities that exist for each and every one of us if if only we embrace the challenges of aging and make the effort to live life to its fullest. Man, I love it when you make those points, Mark, because they're right, really right on the money. And we, folks, are far from the only people who feel that way. One of the most vibrant and challenging voices out there happens to be a wonderfully gifted writer who's lived a difficult and complicated life. He's also a psychotherapist, so his perspective on aging is fresh and vibrant and compelling. Oh, did I tell you he's HIV positive and was expected to die over 20 years ago? Well, his new book is a great read. It's called The New 60, Outliving Yourself and Reinventing a Future. We're happy to say hi to Robert Levithan. Hey, Robert, how are you? I'm just great, and I'm very excited about doing this program because your philosophy and my philosophy are basically the same thing. Yeah, let's, ha- let's live out, live fully and excitedly, and and vitally, and have an, and reinvent ourselves and embrace this chapter we're in, whatever age we are. You know, you wouldn't think that it would be a tough sell, but you know, <laughs> week after week we come on here trying to help, you know, help motivate people because really, you can be anything you want to be these days. Well, yes. You know, there's a wonderful sentence that comes from a workshop that I I have the privilege of co-leading four times a year called The Mastery, and it's that the quality of life is not determined by the circumstances. And that doesn't mean that some circumstances are not more difficult than others, but the actual quality of the day we're in and our experience of life is all about how we hold the circumstances and what we do with them. And certainly aging is a circumstance. Mm. And, you know, what we bring to it is we'll determine whether we have high quality or not. And, you know, Robert, not in any way to diminish uh, all that you are, but but we have found the thing that really resonates with listeners and viewers is the fact that we bring, you know, really ordinary people like ourselves, and, and, and if I may, like you, who have gone on to overcome all sorts of obstacles to live extraordinary lives. And that's what resonates. It's not about superstars that are, you know, genetic freaks. It's about everybody having the possibility, if they will just keep on keeping on getting somewhere. Yes, we have to be unreasonable. That's <laughs> a big part of resilience, and unreasonable in the sense of not buying into the culture's values. You know, the idea that we have a shelf life is absurd. And yes, I'm, I'm a, you know, in, in many ways, as you say, we're, you know, we're all just regular folk. And my journey got complicated, you know, by the fact that I've been, I tested positive in 1984, I believe it was, as part of a study, before the test was actually available for people in the general public. And so that has certainly influenced my, my experience 
for me, it makes aging a, such a gift. I mean, why would I feel bad about the fact that I've, you know, I'm now 61, that I, when I turn 60, that this is like, oh, bad news. Wow. I mean, how amazing that I'm here and that I get to have all these experiences. You know, Robert, it's amazing to me. Uh, I, I think it's fascinating how you reacted to, uh, to to having HIV. I mean, you, there there are two ways to do it. You could you could close yourself off behind walls and and just disappear and fade away. But you became an activist really right from the beginning, didn't you? You stepped up to help other people that were going through the same thing. You were one of the first to help encourage people to fight to live instead of just prepare to die. Well, it it just seemed logical to me. And also, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate I come from a lineage of this unreasonableness. There are people in my family, I grew up with the stories in my family of people who were told they had, you know, two days to live and they were alive 30 days, 30 years later, excuse me. And so I knew that you didn't have to agree with whatever is told to you. And so when I, when people were saying HIV always fatal, you know, AIDS, everyone dies, I actually decided to use a little bit of common knowledge is that there's, in the history of epidemiology, there had never been anything that 100% of people have died from, including the plagues. <laughs> so why would this one be the first time? And so I always like to live in possibility. When I meet somebody, I remember meeting someone who told me he was positive for 26 years, and this was before meds were available, because his blood had been frozen in a study in San Francisco in the 70s, and they had gone back and tested it. And when I met him, I thought, said, thank you, because now I know this is possible. And all I need to know that it's possible, then I can go for it. Living in Possibility is Robert Levithan, the author of a new book, The New 60, Outliving Yourself and Reinventing Your Future. All right, in 84, you were diagnosed with HIV, which could have been, in your mind, a death sentence. But 10 years later, in 94, things even got worse. In retrospect, Robert, what happened to you then might have given you back your future. Well, you know, the fact that I went through an extreme you know, illness, my immune system crashed, and I had to give up my life on a day-to-day basis as I had known it, it was a healing crisis in ways. You know, I don't want to go through that again, but I don't want to be the person that I was before it either. You know, I certainly have been told by a number of people close to me that I'm more compassionate, more available, and more alive because of the fact that I came that close to death. So do you feel now, Robert, that age has, I mean, has it changed the way you look at things? Has it granted you wisdom when you counsel younger people? Do they listen to you? And would you have? (laughs) Well, some do, yes. (laughs) You know, in in another era, um, you know, I would be an elder. And so I, I, in certain ways, I am an elder. In fact, the first time I ever wrote a column, I wrote it for Out.com, as I, and the title was I Am an AIDS Elder, because I realized that I'm holding a piece of history. There aren't a lot of people who've lived through the entire epidemic and actually had AIDS and come back without damage and are living a full-out, healthy life. Hmm. You know, we're all coming... So I share my story because, you know, it is an example of what's possible, you know, and I'm not... I'm not that special. It, I just, you know, had some good luck and good fortune and a willingness to, to keep on going. Robert, as we wrap this up, what is your message? What do you hope that we can all learn from what you've been through and, and what you've learned about the journey of life? Basically, that it really is the quality of our life is about what we do with what's given to us. Life will present us with challenges, it will present us with gifts, It'll present us with all sorts of things, and the quality of our life comes from what we do with them. And that's why I wrote The New 60, because I wanted people to have an opportunity to at least see through my experience and also the experience of my clients and colleagues. I, I, this, you know, I share more than just my own personal story. And that what is possible, you're right, possibility and resilience, reinvention, and vitality excitement about being alive, whether I'm here for another, you know, this is the last year of my life or I live to be 90. I want to be alive for it. Robert, your personal story, the ones you've heard and shared with us, your insights into struggling through some very serious issues is is helpful to all of us, and we want to thank you for sharing that. And folks, there's so much more to learn from him. First of all, he's got the book, The New 60, but another great place to start is on his website, which is robertlevithan.com. 
Bolder.com. Make sure to check him out because he's a guy who gets what Growing Boulder is all about. Isn't it interesting how fast this show can fly by <laughs> when you're talking about ways to put the spark back in your life? I mean, from guests who prove that hope and inspiration are qualities that never fade and who prove that opportunities do surround us and that no matter what your circumstances, there are changes you can make to lead a more vibrant and fulfilling life. Yeah, we really hope that you feel this is an hour well spent. And folks, the fun doesn't stop here because in the coming weeks, you'll hear from more people who are not just talking the talk, but they're living their lives in ways that defy conventional wisdom. People are getting each and every drop out of life that they can. Folks that are still setting goals, breaking records, and seeking new adventures. And the good news is that any of our guests could be you if you just get out there and start Growing Boulder. So why not give it a try? We think you're going to like it. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting, all rights reserved. This program was recorded live at the studios of WMFE Orlando. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Jackie Carlin, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producer is Katie Widrick. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Chief audio engineer is Mac Dula, and our most important team member is you. Remember, when it comes to growing bolder, it's not about age, it's about attitude. Crimson flames tied through my ears, going high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh